Welcome to Giants of the Faith, the podcast that explores the lives and legacies of influential Christians throughout history. My name is Robert Daniels, and I'm the host of the show, and today we're going to talk about Horatio Spafford, the author of the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. As we'll see, Spafford went off the rails in his later life, and so he's relegated to a bonus episode as we wind down our focus on the great hymn writers. This is probably going to stand as the longest episode in Season 4, and I had to trim a lot of crazy stuff from it just to keep this episode to a reasonable length. So if you're interested in knowing more, go check out the source articles, particularly Laban, that I've linked in the show notes. Okay, Horatio Spafford was born on October 20th, 1828, in Troy, New York, to a prominent family. He became a successful lawyer and a Presbyterian church elder in Chicago. Horatio and Anna Larson met at Sunday school lecture that Spafford gave in 1857 when Horatio was 29 and Anna was only 16. But four years later, the two were wed. The couple had a lot of children. It was pretty hard to come up with an exact number. Uh, They had at least six daughters, one son, and then maybe another daughter that was adopted later in their life. At any rate, it was a large family. Spafford was a friend and supporter of evangelist Dwight L. Moody, and he also had some contact with the Irish clergyman John Nelson Darby, who was the founder of dispensationalism. I'm no fan of Darby and his left-behind eschatology, but we'll likely feature him in an upcoming episode, so stay tuned for that. Spafford was an upright man, and he seemed to hold orthodox Christian beliefs until two major tragedies struck his life. The first tragedy was the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, which destroyed most of his real estate investments and left him financially ruined. Spafford had owned a lot of property in Chicago. But the second tragedy was even more devastating. In 1873, he planned to take his family on a trip to Europe to join Moody's evangelistic campaigns. However, he himself had to stay behind because of some business issues, so he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead on a steamship called the Ville de Hove. On November 22, 1873, that ship collided with another vessel in the middle of the Atlantic and sank within 12 minutes. All four of his daughters drowned while his wife survived. When she made it to safety, she sent him a telegram that simply read, Saved Alone. Spafford immediately boarded another ship to meet his grieving wife in England. As he passed near the spot where his daughters had died, he wrote the words to the hymn, It is well with my soul. And it's a hymn that expresses his trust in God's sovereignty and grace in the midst of sorrow. And knowing the origin of the song, the imagery of the first verse becomes more poignant. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well it is well with my soul. Now, the hymn was eventually set to music by Philip Blass, who named the tune after the ship that carried Spafford's daughters, which I'm not going to pretend to be able to pronounce a second time. The hymn became popular among Christians and has been sung for generations. And that's the story that you might hear in church. In fact, it's one that my pastor told in church just a few months ago. However, Spafford's story does not end there. After the shipwreck and on the advice of Dwight Moody, Anna threw herself into charitable work to both ease and avoid her pain. 
She worked with Moody's organizations to feed the poor, nurse the sick, and she became involved in the temperance movement. And while Anna did all that, Horatio stopped working and he turned inward. And his inward focus led him into heresy. He became obsessed with the idea that his children might not be in heaven, so he rejected limited atonement in favor of universalism. And this led him to a rejection of the existence of hell and to annihilationism. He believed that all would be saved, even Satan himself, at the end of days. And this put him in conflict with his church, of course. And after a failed coup to oust his pastor, he and a few others left the church. And the Spafford home became a new church. The church was called the Bride, and Spafford himself became the pastor. As the weeks went on, the Bride became more and more charismatic in its character. Not only did Spafford supposedly receive extra-biblical revelations from God, many of the women in his group did as well, and they were known as the prophetesses. These prophetesses received their missives with accompanying signs, of course. Is your nose running? Better pay attention because God is speaking. Teeth clattering? That's a sure sign of revelation. Did your eyes roll back in your head? Katie bar the door. The bride's members performed more flips and flops than LeBron James, and at one point, they even sanctified a bowl of oranges, yes, the fruit, as proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit in those oranges. As the Spafford's savings dwindled toward nothing, Horatio believed he received a long-awaited call from God to go to Jerusalem. So in 1881, with their two new daughters in tow and the equivalent of two million debt behind them, the Spaffords boarded the ship with 14 other true believers and headed for the Holy Land. They called themselves the Overcomers, and they believed that they were living in the end times, thanks Darby, and that they had a special mission from God to prepare for Christ's return. In Palestine, the group spent many days picnicking on the Mount of Olives, waiting for Jesus to return. And they picnicked because they wanted to be the first to offer Christ food and drink when he did finally return. And by doing this, they hoped that they would get the best jobs in Christ's new millennial reign. After a while of waiting, the group rented a home and set up a new base of operations called the American Colony. And the colony was nothing if not ecumenical. They welcomed Christians, Jews, and Muslims to worship together and share in prayer, despite the obvious theological differences between the groups. They were certain that Christ's return would erase the minor differences that they had. Spafford claimed to have visions and revelations from God, and he even declared himself to be the second Messiah. He went by the title The Branch, and he excommunicated himself from his former Presbyterian church and rejected any criticism or correction from other Christians. Anna took the title The Bride, and she began to assume control over the group's finances and worked hard to ensure that wealthy widow Amelia Gould and John and Mary Whiting a young couple with a sizable inheritance, remained committed to the cause. Since members had to give over all their possessions, when they joined, there was quite a lot of money flowing around. But just as money came into the organization, money quickly went out. One group of Yemeni Jews wanted to return to their homeland, but the Jews occupying it rejected them, as Spafford believed them to be the lost tribe of Gad, so he spent much of the colony's money supporting these Gadites. Deuteronomy 33.20 says, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad's domain. So Spafford, clearly a very careful interpreter of scripture, 
believed that he could hurry along the second coming by supporting this lost tribe. But things turned sour for the colony. Members began to die or get sick, and that just wasn't supposed to happen. To the Spaffords, this was proof that sin had entered their group. They declared that marriage was a hindrance to the return of Jesus, and so had the group commit to celibacy and melt down their wedding rings. This move was spearheaded by Anna, and I assume this was just another cash grab and that they sold off the gold, but I couldn't find any supporting documentation for that. What I can tell you is that Anna had become quite used to the comfortable life and was not interested at all in living in poverty. Horatio began spending time with a woman outside of the colony's ranks. Now this friendship bloomed, likely into adultery, as Anna and Horatio grew apart. By this time, Anna had almost total control of the group, and because of Horatio's dalliance, Anna had him sentenced to 44 days of shunning. The group was not to speak to him or have any sort of contact with him. Now, Horatio's body began to wither, and it became clear that he would not survive the ordeal. But rather than call a doctor, Anna said she would dance before the Lord. So she went to the patio, she danced wildly, but it was to no avail. Horatio died on September 25th, 1888. Of course, the death of the second Messiah shook the group. They eventually returned to the United States. Uh, There's a lot more to the story, but we're just not going to cover it here because Horatio's out of the picture. Maybe we'll cover that someday in a special episode on Anna's life. So what can we learn from Horatio Spafford's life? On one hand, we can admire his faith and his courage, facing unimaginable losses and writing a hymn that has comforted many people in times of trouble. But on the other hand, we can see how he went astray from biblical truth. He became deceived by false teachings and delusions, And the story reminds us the importance of holding fast to sound doctrine and testing everything by scripture. It also warns us of the dangers of pride and isolation from other believers who can help us grow in grace and knowledge. And as we sing, it is well with my soul. Let us remember both the beauty and the tragedy of Horatio Spafford's life. And let us pray that God will keep us faithful to his word. Thank you for listening to Giants of the Faith. Until next time. God bless.